You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Devings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 256 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stemmings, and not joining me in the studio this week is Matt Smith, because he's <laughs> he's just, he's left me. He's just left me, and that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> but, oh, but he is joining us through a video link, and I'm just going to press this button here. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hello. I'm I'm very well, Carlos. How is the head? <laughs> oh, it, I'll tell you what, Matt, I'm having such a great time being here on my own in the studio. Well, not quite on my own, but pressing all the um, no. buttons and um, yeah. just, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, hopefully this is the last time we have to restart, but if you are <laughs> listening to the audio-audio version, obviously which will be perfect and beautiful in every possible way, uh, Carlos has had quite a bit of a mare uh, in regard to the start of the show, in the fact that, as I say, this is now, uh, I think, in fact, actually some of the comments in the chat room, Tony Yes particularly has made me laugh. He says, I'm glad the previous 255 practice shows are paying dividends. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's all going really well. So, uh, yes, everybody needs to hug Carlos and make him feel quite special today. I've just, I've just, I've just got a headache. Oh, Jake's giving me a little rub So, welcome to you, Matt. And, um, yes, we'll, we'll get to the guests soon. Um, and joining yeah. us as well, as always this week, is uh, the other awesome part of the show, the other co-host of the show, and that's Neville Bounds. Hello, Nev. Yes, hello. Pleased to be back on the show. And uh, yeah, I was uh, unavailable last week due to uh, also some lateness coming into Heathrow for starters and also some customer issues that I had to deal with when I did get here. But uh, um, yes, there'll be some uh, stories about that uh, later on in the news. But uh, yeah, all good. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, looking forward to another great show. Excellent. So joining us as well this week, he's uh, still on location somewhere in uh, sunny Europe. It's uh, the awesome uh, fourth member of our awesome team at Armando. Hey, everybody. Happy Saturday night. I am back in Germany on location. Uh, my accommodations have improved quite a bit from a concrete room, kind of prison-looking room into a nice Airbnb. But... Uh, yeah, so I had a nice weekend with uh, Stephen Ivey last week after the show. Took him down to Duxford and uh, spent about three hours there looking at airplanes. Not long enough, and then uh, a couple pints out in Cambridge. So just a great weekend with him, and it was uh, really great having him in the UK. Excellent. Yeah, we uh, we enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed my my short uh, meet up with. Uh with uh, Stephen uh, picking up from the train station and uh, obviously we had him on the show last week as well which was great but I'm glad you had fun at Duxford and uh, I think at least uh, Stephen he got to go on the Concorde as well didn't he? I think he did yeah he uh, he got we we just didn't have enough time you could you could spend a day. two full days yeah yeah <laughs> Carlos, just, just, um, just uh, <laughs> there you go look <laughs> 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 oh god here we go anyway moving My swiftly on moving swiftly on we have uh, we have got guests with us in the studio p2k studio this week and uh, joining us uh, or joining me with the, in the studio this week he's the uh, the best cfi on the entire planet it's stuart o'neill oh hello all 
<laughs> and Stuart, it's safe to say you're having a really great day today as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to—I was looking forward to coming on the show and uh, saying hi all, and uh, everything's all really <clears> good. <throat> I'm back on my feet and was in Asia and flew on a uh, Laotian Airlines ATR, which was really good fun. Oh, ATR seventy two. Yeah, and uh, saw a Pilatus Porter in Thailand as well, which I might get to fly in the future. Oh, but uh, and I've just been flying in Sweden, and uh, I was looking forward to going to Toulouse next week and visiting an Airbus factory. Um, but as you all now now know. Um, and it's official that my airline has gone into administration. Yeah, that's uh, very sad news indeed. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure the community will uh, will all stand by and help you, uh, uh, Stuart. Because yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. thank you. you uh, will. I, I, it shouldn't be too difficult for me to get a job now, but I've got the magic hours and such. But uh, it's just yeah, a bit of a shock. I was meant to be on my command upgrade course in April. Oh. So. <sighs> but yeah. at least at least now, I suppose I'll be able to see you a bit more coming over where I work in yeah. the uh, caravan. That's the ticket, Carlos. It's all about you. buzzing the caravan because I have missed you at flying the caravan at uh, Beckles. It is, but you know, it's been a real. You know, you do miss yeah. Stuart doing I'm the nose diving over yeah. Bungie. Yeah, yeah. So right, I'm back, and, then, and so I'm looking for a job. And uh, this young man here is looking for a job as well. Yes, yeah. sitting uh, next to Stuart in the studio with me is uh, someone I've been wanting to get on the <coughs> show for the last 400 years. He's finally made it here, and it's safe to say that he's, uh, he's moved on leaps and bounds. So welcome, Jake Mears. Two years late, but better late than never. Yeah. Nice, so, to, nice to see everybody. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's great. Welcome to the chaos. Jack. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving every second of it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, hope, I hope I'm not the bad omen. And that is it's going to happen every time I come on. But yeah, no, so. no, no. We're going to have a chat with you later on on the show, Jake. Anyway, and uh, talk about what you've been doing. Hopefully, if we get time. Yeah, we, we will indeed. Look forward so to joining us as well, Matt has got a guest, special guest in his uh, hotel studio with him uh, tonight, and it's another awesome friend of the show and pilot as well. And it's always good to welcome onto the show the beautiful Myla. <laughs> hello, hello. Thank you for the kind introduction, Carlos. Really appreciate it. So, uh, how's the how's the flying going with you, Myla? All good? Yeah, it's very good. I love it. So, yeah, I'm happy. You still enjoying uh, enjoying uh, flying the cargo around uh, the skies at night? Absolutely, yes. It's a good job. <laughs> and also, on that note of uh, of teddy bears, uh, a certain teddy bear <laughs> was purchased today. <laughs> Absolutely, we're to build a bear. You've got you've got to see this one, guys. For those of you who can still see the stream on YouTube, you can see the uh, PTUK Aww. teddy bear. <laughs> now these, <laughs> this is a one-off. I might Aww. just say before before we start getting orders through, it's, uh, it's start coming through, yeah, yeah. The requests are going to start coming through for uh, PTUK teddy bears, and I think <laughs> I think that's a little bit further down the um, down the list, Matt. Would you say? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll start with mugs and see how they go first. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Build-A-Bear another time, yeah. Right, and then we can do hedgehogs and sheeps. Right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah, yeah. I just want to lie, lie down in a darkened room, frankly. Uh, we've, just got to hope, we've just got to hope that uh, BT don't supply the mugs. Right, yes, yeah. let's hope not. Let's no. hope not. <laughs> Indeed, so <laughs> we are going to start the show then as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if everyone's ready. Yes, we yeah, are. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Ready to go. Already. Let's go.
kicking off this week's first news story, and uh, this one is on the bbcnews.co.uk website, and it's about the aircraft we all know and love, but we've talked about for the last few weeks, and it's the A380, and Airbus are scrapping uh, the Super Jumbo as sales slump. So uh, European aircraft manufacturer Airbus has uh, pulled the plug on its struggling A380 Super Jumbo which ended service just 12 years ago. Airbus has said the deliveries of the world's largest passenger aircraft which cost around $25 billion or £19.4 billion to develop would be made in 2021. The decision comes after Emirates, the largest A380 customer, cut its orders and the A380 has faced fierce competition from smaller, more fuel-efficient aircraft, uh, but the aircraft, the A380, has never made a profit. The A380's future had been in doubt for several years as orders dwindled, but uh, in a statement on Thursday this week, Airbus said the painful decision to end production was made after Emirates reduced its latest order. The Dubai-based airline is cutting its overall A380 fleet size from 162 to 123 aircraft. Emirates have said it will take delivery of 14 further A380s over the next two years, but has ordered, uh, also ordered 70 of Airbus's smaller A330s and A350 models. Emirates has been the staunch supporter of the A380s since its inception, uh, said the airline's chairman Sheikh Ahmed bin Said Al Maktoum. Uh, while we are disappointed to have given up our order, he said, he said this, uh, and the sad that the program could not be sustained, we accept that this is the reality of the situation, he added. Now, um, obviously, we've been covering stories on the 380 for a while now, and it's uh, kind of demise. Um, Stuart, being an airline pilot, uh, you know, what, what your view? Why do you think this has sort of failed? Well, every time I've been on the show, there's been articles about the A380. Um, it's a real shame. I really did think it was going to work for the airports like Heathrow where it was going to be needed. And you know, I can see Nev's got one there on behind him, hasn't he? He has, yeah, yeah. indeed, yeah. Um, so, yeah, <coughs> I guess we all thought it was going to have a niche market, but I thought they were going to keep it trickling along, just slow slow production. Um, but alas, no. And Boeing have got the last laugh because they're still selling the 747. They are, yeah, yeah. in the Dash 8, yeah, intercontinental. Jake, any uh, any views? Well, do you, do you not think it would have helped if they did do another engine option of it to make it cheaper to run? What? Why? Why haven't they put a new engine option out there for the um, for, for the for the aircraft? I don't understand. I, I don't know how much the it, what did it cost twenty five billion dollars to produce did the, it? The program, yeah. Maybe it wasn't efficient to put a different engine on it. I don't know, but I'd have thought that'd have been a a good option for them to make them more profitable. Um, but two engines are taken over, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think he's got a point there, Nev. I think uh, Airbus missed the trick. Do you think? Yeah, well, I think this, things have changed. It's in aviation. It's all about timing, isn't it? So, so often we find this, and just as the newer generation twin jets of the seven eight seven and A three fifty with the the composite materials uh, came out, and also very very uh, fuel efficient engines as well. Um, with ultra long range and this kind of stuff, um, and I think perhaps the uh, A380 just did not come at the right time, and uh, mm. it's it's a big shame because obviously it's a fantastic aircraft, very a high technology machine, uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about putting bums on seats and making it a commercial success. So um, I think that the likelihood is that the um, 
the A350 and the 787 really are going to take over those roles um, and because they do so well on very long routes. I mean, you know, don't forget the uh, 787s on the uh, Perth to London route and um, uh, uh, Qantas have challenged uh, Boeing and Airbus to do a non-stop Sydney to Melbourne, sorry, Sydney and Melbourne to uh, Heathrow service as well mm. in the next couple of years. So we're not really seeing that done by a four-engine aircraft, that's for sure. Actually, Andy Wilson in the chat room just said that engines weren't the problem. He says, uh, like uh, he said earlier, in 20 years it will be, probably be needed, just like the 757 is now. Mm. Which I suppose, yeah, mm. it does have yeah. a point, yeah, because yeah, that, that gap is still to be filled, really, with the 757. I think the other thing off. is it's just had a lot of teething problems as well, hasn't it? So, like, the airports that it couldn't operate at to start with when they wanted it to operate. And then mm. the operators themselves have had problems filling it or emptying it or uh, loading it in time because it, cause it's trying to load up 600 passengers in one go on a plane, then clean up after 600 passengers and reload them. They just didn't have the experience at it. So I think there was a lot of teething problems with that. But maybe in the future, like, if Ryanair could get them and make it efficient and <laughs> back it out and use it straight off and back again. Actually, Tony S. Do you think a lot of this is actually to do also with the fact that people want um, more efficient engines? Um, and so if you're running, obviously, it's the A380. I mean, you know, even with my little knowledge, obviously, I know that it's got four engines on it. And I mean, virtually all of the aircraft are now looking at sort of like two engine options. Do you think it's uh, something as simple as that? It's all about um, trying to you know, a lot of airlines are trying to appear to be environmentally friendly and, and that, I mean, do you think that would be a factor in it? I think that's probably right. I mean, that's one of the problems that the, was it the BA 146 had, the Avro RJ? It was oh, yeah, the, four, the, yeah. the four engines, wasn't it? And a lot of airlines didn't like the four engine look because it is a thirsty thing. It's a brilliant, yeah. brilliant aircraft. It gets out of lots of small airports, but it does drink fuel. And I think it can be a bit of a look of a four engine aircraft being a bit of a, an, an uh, an eco, anti-eco aircraft, I suppose, might give that sort of an impression, mightn't it? Mm. Potentially. Uh, there, there is also, there could be a chance of them coming back because ETOPS, Extended Twin Operation Range, so all the, all the big twins now, the 787s and your A350s, I don't know how many hours of ETOPS they've got. Um, how many hours they can run for three and a half or four hours? Uh, yeah, something like that, but, yeah. I mean, there could be a big incident. I mean, there's been... Trent's running down and they've been mm. parking in Iceland and stuff recently so I don't know if there's a few more incidents where they, they might bring back the amount of hours they can go extended on one engine. I think don't you think Stuart that uh, I think had ETOPS not been as successful as it was and, and yes there, obviously there have been some incidents uh, I mean ETOPS aircraft are incredibly reliable uh, and they've obviously had the range and, the, and they've had the, the total reliability had that not been the case I think there might have been some more appetite for yeah. uh, four engine uh, aircraft but uh, certainly they, they, they've managed to get the reliability even with the Trent 1000 problems um, you know pr pretty good there's some great uh, comments in the chat room, actually, if I if I may. Uh, Jennifer is saying Airbus guessed uh, wrong about uh, what the industry wants slash needs right now. And again, Tony's saying it's difficult to read the market potential of 10, 15 years ahead of uh, uh, production. Uh, another good point, actually, he was saying was about the uh, a freighter option might have helped uh, prolong its life. I mean, if you think like the se the 747, I mean, I think one of the reasons why that is such a, a popular aircraft even now is, I mean, it is the go-to aeroplane when it comes to sort of freight, isn't it? I mean, that's where a lot of people 
go, isn't it, for 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 large loads, uh, etc. Do you think that's not weird though that, that Airbus never thought, you know, let's do a freighter version? Yeah, it's I think really it was the structural design of it, yeah, wasn't it? For I the think they did floor in the middle, so they couldn't put it as a freighter, mm. wasn't it? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. So moving on to the next story, and Matt, uh, this one is a obviously a special story for you, and uh, on the Guardian because I like to pitch the, uh, pitch right. the posh papers for you. So we, we, we could, we're going to try and make the Ryanair appear posh then, by the sound of it. So this is on the uh, Guardian newspaper, as Carlos saying, and uh, the he- the headline is uh, Ryanair passengers get double the time to alter bookings for free. So this is definitely good news. Ryanair passengers will now have 48 hours to make changes to bookings for free after the airline announced a series of customer care improvements. Customers currently have a 24-hour grace period to correct any minor errors, for example, a misspelled name, free of charge. But this is being doubled. Ryanair's fees in this area can be hefty. For example, uh, uh, its name change fee is £115 per passenger, rising to £160 if you end up doing it at the airport. Ryanair has also launched a £199 slash €199. That's interesting. Is is, is Sterling really that weak at the moment that there's there's no difference? Uh, It's an annual frequent flyer program called Ryanair Choice, offering free seats, fast track and priority boarding. EU 261 is the EU directive that obliges uh, airlines to pay compensation for flight delays of more than three hours. And Ryanair has announced a customer care charter whereby it says claims will be processed in 10 days with a new 24-hour support line. Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting story, really, that they're going to go down. The, that, that's quite exciting, isn't it, to, to the EU 261 directive to actually sort of come in line? Because I think a lot of the uh, the other airlines and stuff are more or less doing it in the same same time frame, aren't they? They're doing it in about ten days. Yeah, I never I've never had to change my name on a on a booking before. I tend to always. Yeah. Tend to always double check and make no, sure I, I got I things right first the, time. I meant more sort of like they're saying about the EU one directive being sort of brought into line. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I don't. I, Nev, have you had any experience with with this? Have you had to have any um, compensation paid? Uh, no, I don't think I would do that. Um, I also, wouldn't change my name either. Uh, but um, <laughs> Mrs. Nev, of course, has recently recently changed her name, of course, uh, to my surname. But um, we've not bothered to do anything with the passport and the rest of it. We'll just wait till we've um, come back. Last, last flight was to to Canada to see Liz in in July, and uh, we'll we'll do it after that. That's probably the most common Indeed. one, isn't it? Wives and surnames. I had the issue with uh, Chan's passport before as well. So it depends which passport mm. you're using, which name, and then you might change it when you're at the gate. I don't know. I had an issue a couple of months ago where I couldn't I couldn't check in because the reservation system had added a MR in front of my name. So it, it was Mr. Armando, and it was registering as M-R-A-R-M-A-N-D-O, and it, it wouldn't <laughs> let me through the system. I thought I was going to p- have to pay the name change fee. <laughs> now, for system errors, you shouldn't have to, to pay anything. Not if it's not if it's not your fault. Uh, it, yeah. Is it one of those issues where you've got to prove that um, it's a system error? Though uh, I don't. I mean, it's they're not always the helplines are not always willing to sort of to you know help you off you know straight off the back. They were they were running a Mac. Anyway, moving on to the <laughs> oh. next oh. story. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> anyway, yeah, move, sorry, move, <laughs> moving on to the next story and uh, Nev. Obviously, uh, the pride of place is uh, for you with the third story. 
Thank you very much indeed, Carlos. Well, yes, it's another media fail, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and, uh, on Friday, when I was flying uh, back to Heathrow from Amsterdam, Schiphol, uh, just before I got in, uh, there was a 787 landing and, of course, a bit windy. So, obviously, there's a bit of media coverage. And this is on the uh, insider.com. And it says on Friday, a British Airways flight from uh, Hyderabad, India, to London was attempting to land at Heathrow Airport when strong crosswinds picked up. The plane was rocked side to side by the winds as it started to touch down, but then bounced off its back tires. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And and, and uh, this is, was obviously a 787, and so they're showing a picture of a 747-400. Uh, Always is, good. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Nicely done. Uh, and uh, actually, Jerry at uh, Big Jet TV was there, and he captured the incident, which was great, and that's, uh, that went viral on, on social media. And it says in a statement uh, to the website, um, British Airways said the pilots, uh, planes pilot conducted a standard manoeuvre known as a go-around after the initial landing attempt. <laughs> this landing manoeuvre in which the aircraft circles the airport and lands safely is fairly common and well known amongst pilots, is it really? Uh, if you're truly afraid of flying, you might want to click away from this story now. Here's something more pleasant to read instead. But uh, if you're here for the drama, then keep scrolling because this video of a British Airways flight bouncing off the runway is something you need to see. Uh, I'm not going to go on about it because we've seen it so many times and there's just so much misreporting on this story. It's just terrific. Uh, yes, it was windy and um, <laughs> around. End of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit spectacular. But um, no, I, I think that... Um, uh, funny enough, when we were landing, um, I think the wind was straight down the runway because it was pretty bumpy, but there's no hint of any sort of crosswind, really. And it's just, you know, one of those things. It, it's how it is. It was actually more bumpy around about uh, 2,000 feet or so just as we uh, joined the ILS, I think. That was very, very wiggly up there. But uh, no, when we got it down to within so just across the threshold of the runway about 50 feet it was it was all right actually not too bad but uh, yes of course uh, the media love a good uh, uh, dramatic story but could we just have you know the right aircraft please <laughs> yes. uh, Stuart you, you you've just seen obviously you watched that video what do you think of that uh... it was just a go around that was all it was a little bit um it was a bit of oscillation just at the end so mm. they probably weren't happy and yeah yeah but I mean, surely, surely this is a, a classic example of this is totally 100% the right thing to do. Somebody wasn't 100% happy with what was occurring. So the captain and the first officer, or probably just the captain, just went, no, I'm not happy with this. Let's go around. I mean, that's... Actually, can you see how yeah, far it is absolutely. down the runway? How far is it down the runway? They probably started that go around, right, right as Stuart said, the... The nose started to drop just a little bit. I'll, I'll bet you, as soon as that uh, they felt that nose drop, they started putting the power yeah. in. It and also, happened. did you notice as well that uh, I mean that aircraft had plenty of energy in it, didn't it? So there was no no issue at all in in terms of speed and all the rest of it. And no. I would Im I would imagine as well that uh, they were you know added a few knots uh, because of the windy conditions as well. So yeah, non issue. Yeah. So as per usual, it's it's a media non-story that is being sensationalised by mainstream media. That that that's 
what it is again, isn't it? Media non-story, but it did look good, didn't it? Yeah, it did look good, I'll give you that. But, yeah. So moving on to the next story, Armando, this uh, next one is uh, a special one for you. Yeah, this is from the Aviation Herald, and it is a Compass Embraer 175 near Reno, Nevada, that uh, experienced severe turbulence and injured eight individuals. So this uh, ERJ-175 on was flying on behalf of Delta Airlines. Registration 613 Charlie Zulu was performing flight uh, 5763 from Santa Ana to Seattle, Washington. Was en route about uh, flight level 340, 100 miles south of Reno, Nevada. Just over flying the first mountain range of the Sierra Nevada when the aircraft encountered severe turbulence causing altitude deviations of about 200 feet and injuries on board the aircraft. Trolleys, everything loose, like meal trays, were disturbed, in quotes, across the cabin. Uh, the crew decided to divert to Reno, where the aircraft landed safely. Flight attendant, three passengers were taken to hospital. Um, the FAA reported that a flight attendant, seven passengers were injured when the aircraft encountered severe turbulence. Uh, there was a passenger in the toilet that came out uh, bleeding from his head and uh, there's a picture in this article that shows the uh, the beverage cart was uh, th there's soda and drinks on the ceiling, <laughs> and uh, it looks like just like a, a real mess. Those carts are not light by any means, and uh, no. it looks like it actually went up and, and hit the ceiling and came back down. So it could have really hurt somebody. Yeah, I suppose this is one of those things, isn't it? It's uh... Uh, you, you run the risk. I mean, you know, they, they normally, if there's any hint uh, that there might be severe turbulence during flight or whatever, obviously the captain or the first officer will pull the the the, the plug as quickly as possible and ask everybody to to take a seat. But I mean, sometimes, I mean, it is by very definition a, a tricky beast to track, isn't it? Uh, uh, as to how severe the the turbulence may be. Actually, yeah, I was going to say, if anyone who's, who's looking at the story on the Aviation Herald, I can't put the pictures up because that's just a t too much of a technical uh, nightmare. But if you take yourselves over, there is, uh, in the Armando, there is quite a, a, a good picture of the interior of the cabin of the aircraft with, um, yeah, a, quite a mess in there. Yeah, yeah and, and clearer turbulence is a thing. You know, it can happen. Last week we had a story about uh, mountain waves. Um, but clearer turbulence can happen, you know, when weather systems are getting too close to each other, cold to warm temperatures, uh, could be cosmic, a bunch of different things where it's not, uh, you're not able to forecast it as, as well as one would think. So you have any, uh, any dicey turbulent, uh, flights Stuart, with, uh, um, nothing too excessive. No, um, no, yeah. Been in some hard turbulence, but nothing nothing that bad <laughs> no. no but i mean they are yeah. saying there's I, I more think... and more of it globally it's uh, just the way things are isn't it they're saying with the el nino effects and the amount of air traffic it's just uh, increasing well and I, you know i think it's also clear really this is a very unusual extreme event isn't it i mean it doesn't you know the, these things are to, to this level it, it's not commonplace for something like this to happen is it no but not that level but it is increasing um, extreme temperatures and yeah. extreme weather i think it's uh, increased turbulence yeah um just unfortunate um and the, the equipment to detect it is limited uh 
I mean, quite often air traffic control are asking you for ride reports and we're always kind of telling them, oh, this level's better or can we go down or up a bit and then they'll be asking us and then it's just a sharing of information about ride reports in, in well, in European airspace. Hmm. So the next story, yeah, Stuart. There, oh, oh, sorry. On. Yeah, uh, go on the Monday. There, there's specific areas, too, that airlines know, dispatchers know, that are more prone to either mountain waves or clearer turbulence. You know, it, it could be... The Rockies, the Central Plains, California, Newfoundland, um, the Great Lakes, those areas are all sort of known and and more more apt to experience something like this. So what what about with, with actually with you, Jake, doing the GA flying and stuff? You know, the uh, turbulent weather obviously in a, in a light aircraft is uh, a bit more a bit fun. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 and to be honest, I got quite lucky with my commercial training. I never really had too many bumpy rides. I was um, got quite lucky with that. I was in the back of a friend's lesson who was doing his, his instrument rating, and it was his first time in the aeroplane, and we were flying at night, and we were going through storms. <laughs> we were getting some ice on the wings and things like that. That's a bit hairy, and that's the worst I've been in. <laughs> first time ever I actually did up my seatbelt a bit tighter. <laughs> so I'm going to oh. belt myself in a bit here. Uh, yeah, that was getting a bit um, a bit hairy. But generally speaking, um, we I never encountered it too much. Actually, I got quite lucky with it. Yeah, you get you get used to it anyway. Um, so probably my tolerance is any commercial pilot's tolerance is going to be better than anyone who's just a regular probably passenger. Matt, uh, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, 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 don't I, I have me, no words. I, I don't like turbulence. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But you you do get a bit more of a tolerance to it yeah you sort of deal with it but yeah so Stuart the next story is uh, is one for you this one is on flight global and uh, it's uh, well, it's a Ryanair story we thought we'd give Matt a break no oh, thank you really? <laughs> oh, it's because it's narrow body yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry Matt I shouldn't have said that <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah this is uh, Ryanair Max to make debut at Stansted Ryanair's first Boeing 737 MAX narrowbody will be deployed at London Stansted Airport. Speaking at a media event in the UK capital today, Ryanair marketing chief Kenny Jacobs said that the first of the low-cost carriers on-order MAX jets would arrive at the Essex Gateway in April and be followed by another four this year. Jacobs notes that the aircraft fitted with new interiors will offer more legroom and more seats than the carrier's 737 NGs. Flight fleet analyzer data shows that Ryanair has 135 MAX 8 jets on order, all of the high-density MAX 200 sub-variant, and holds options on a further 75. Um, and is that the end, That's of, the the end of the story? Yeah. Oh. So it's safe to say the They've fleet, um, Ryanair's fleet, is, is increasing in size, and um, obviously we knew they were going to get the MAX variants coming mm. online. I, I mean, they're obviously um, obviously using these across the globe now, the Max. I haven't actually had a chance to um, fly on one yet. Anyone? No, no not me. No, no it'd be nice. Uh, a, a, a room service food update, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this has just been sent in by, by Owen. Uh, apparently it was cheaper to buy. Now, I don't believe him. I'm not going to lie. Apparently it was cheaper to do this than it was to order one meal to have delivered by... Um, <laughs> By McDonald's. I don't believe him. I've got to be honest. <laughs> oh dear. They look even smaller boxes though than over here. <laughs> you, well, you know, the big one, I'm sure it's getting true. smaller and smaller. 
Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, the, the Big Mac Grand is now the one that looks like it used to in the photographs, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that'll, anyway. be, that'll be the next breaking story that Ryanair are going to be offering uh, McDonald's on their flights. Yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving swiftly on. So uh, to the next story and... Uh, Jake, yeah, uh, this one is for you. It's on the, also on the Flight Global, uh, Global website, and it's two KLMY bodies have been involved in a minor ground collision at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. During pushback, two aircraft have accidentally made contact, Schiphol's operator states in a Twitter posting. It specifies the relevant flight numbers as Kilo Lima 601 and Kilo Lima 623. Flight Global schedules data identifies the, re- the respective destinations as Los Angeles and Atlanta. And ori- and the original, originally assigned aircraft as the Boeing 747-400, uh, the registration Papa Hotel Bravo Foxtrot Victor, and a 787-9 Papa Hotel Bravo Hotel Alpha. There was no further effect on scheduled flights, says Schiphol's operator, adding the cause will be investigated. Flight Fleet's analyzer lists KLM as the manager of the 747, which is owned by a Bermudan entity named Minots Light. The 787, meanwhile, is leased from Aircap. KLM confirms wingtip damage and says both aircraft are grounded for repair. It stresses that the safety of the passengers has not been compromised at any moment, and that rebookings were so that passengers could continue their journey as quickly as possible. A passenger aboard the uh, 747, identified as Lucas Van Ostrom, has circulated a photo on social media which appears to show the jet's damaged starboard winglet and another which indicates the 787's horizontal stabiliser was involved in the collision. And that's the end of the uh, of the uh, article, but there's some nice pictures showing uh, some damage of both the aircraft, where there used to be a bit of a winglet and there used to be a bit of a horizontal stabiliser. Uh, so as as people have probably realised, we're having a few technical problems with the show this week. Um, the uh, pictures and uh, in, in the show notes uh, that both appear uh, that both appear on YouTube and on the iTunes uh, and or the podcast version, uh, links to all the stories that we feature in this week's show will be available for you to click on and look at there. So uh, do check the show notes for all the uh, all the websites uh, that we're getting the stories from this week. Now it's safe to say we haven't had a haven't had a, a shunt or a ding or uh, on a you know on the news for a little while now. So um, yeah, and this is actually this is two quite you know two big wide-bodied aircraft really the seven four and the seven eight. And you know I'm surprised it's Schiphol because mm. you know I I've only flown into there once in my life, but it you know it's got a good reputation as far yeah. as I, i've heard for uh, this is for operations. It's absolutely senseless for this to happen and it's actually one of my pet peeves when i'm sitting there as a passenger and i'm looking out the window and there's uh ground handlers and there's wing walkers and <clears throat> and you can tell that they're just not paying 100 percent attention you know they're kind of looking around they're not really looking at the wingtips and they're not realizing that that the uh the winglets on these aircraft stick out another you know four Feet, five feet out outwards it, this is absolutely unnecessary in, in my opinion I mean this literally what they're there for I mean I think the wing, okay the wingtip yeah, I okay. think would, would be not too bad but I think it's the damage to the um, yeah stabilizer which I think is is gonna be the mm-hmm. yeah well it's all very very expensive uh, 
actually had a well we had several incidents in my airline maybe that contributed to things <laughs> <laughs> uh, th th just before uh, after I came back online just before Christmas what's the matter with my mic that's it it's got we need tightening up a little bit there oh. we go um, yeah just before Christmas we had a, a ground handling truck run into our engine and uh, really? dent the cowling and uh, dent one of the one of the units connected to the bottom of the engine it oh, was that wow. much of an impact yeah, um, so that grounded our flight. It was interesting because that was the third plane that we were meant to, to get on that day. The first one we couldn't go on because there was some hydraulic issue on it. And then the second one, there was some paperwork issues with it. So we were then going to the third plane and the ground handlers uh, drove into the engine. So I'd love to know what the passengers were told on that day. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so these, these uh, ground incidents uh, are really quite common, unfortunately. Um, I was going to just say, it like you said, it depends on the airport. If mm. we're always going to Brussels Airport... It was 50 with 50 50 whether or not the toilet truck would reverse into the side of the plane. Um, <laughs> and I'd also wow. say that um, it's really just cutting costs. Now, all the airlines, no one really does it in house, so it's all contracted out. And then all these different agencies. So, even when our truck was being, when ours was hit by a ground service agent, they were cutting costs and reducing staff. And loads of them were all moving over to another operator from Swissport to DHL. Um, but you see, traditionally, airlines had their own people on the ground and they knew how to look mm. after their aircraft. But when you're at like a Brussels airport where they deal with 100 different airlines and 100 different types of aircraft, they're all a bit, they're not really that interested. They'll run up, plug your GPU in and run off. They don't really pay attention. That's, mm. what I, I think it's the lack of the airlines not having their own people on the ground. I wouldn't be like that if I worked at an airport. Mind you, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, to be fair, I'd be paying no attention at all to anything going on. I'll just, you know, be too busy watching planes watching on the planes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we all do that so it's really funny even when they're refueling you're all standing at the plane and you see oh there's another big one go by everyone <laughs> watches so uh, if, if anybody happens to be sort of near where Owen is based, uh, there's been a bit of an incident uh, in regard to his fast food delivery uh, in the fact that for some reason the guy has turned up and, and given them given him another order so if anybody is near where Owen is based um, uh, he's got enough food there to feed about 15,000 people by the look of it. It's, uh, and if anyone's ever seen how big 000. Owen is, Owen's not the biggest guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Owen <laughs> slash Jesus. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's developed the ability to uh, magically make Big Macs fall out of the sky. I mean, it's, it's a very useful skill, I'm not going to lie. But, and actually, on, oh, the, wow. on the note of Dubai, Myla, would you like to take the next story? Well, I would, except I didn't get this show notes. Uh, <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> All right, hang on. I'm on it. I'm on it. No I'm on panic. it. I'm on it. The, ne the next story, <laughs> yeah. uh, which uh, Myla's going <laughs> to read, is on the fortune.com website. And it's actually uh, regarding the airport uh, in question where uh, where Owen is not far from now. So, uh, Myla, what's this all about? And don't just, drone on. Just, just a second. <laughs> just one second before, because okay. this is the privacy statement of the website. Is it? Right. Okay, this is going well. <laughs> So most likely... one, one, one moment, caller. You can't get the staff. It's terrible, isn't it? Uh, oh. James, scroll, scroll down. See what says. Oh, continue. I see. Let's click continue. There right. we go. Here it's we are. Right. That was flawless. <laughs> so, on com, Dubai Airport disrupted by unauthorized drone activity. Can we just... Yeah, yes. there we go. Sorry. It, play, it started to play a video. Sorry about that. There we go. And it's still playing it. Stop it! <laughs> It keeps playing the video. 
this is this is a disaster oh. of a show. I'm so sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, there we are. There we are. <laughs> Dubai International Airport stopped flights for half an hour Friday morning following unauthorized drone activity. It follows an incident at London Get London's Gatwick Airport in December, which descended into chaos as drones disrupted pre-Christmas flights for 33 hours, causing approximately 50 million pounds or $64.5 million in losses. Dubai is the world's busiest international airport handling about 90 million passengers last year. The Wall Street Journal reports an official in Dubai said Friday's airport closure was caused by a guy in the desert operating a drone. It wasn't immediately clear if the person responsible was arrested. No one was ever arrested for the Gatwick drone disruption, which canceled 1,000 flights and affected more than 140,000 passengers. Drone activity is an increasing worry for airport administrators. In January, both London Heathrow and Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey had to briefly stop flights after drone sightings. Their mere presence near an airfield can dramatically disrupt commercial air travel. The US government wants to be able to track drones and identify their users in real time but rules are years away from becoming final. Until aviation authorities can figure out how to keep people from flying drones near airports, Gatwick is planning on an airport drone incursion rehearsal, a drone drill to be better prepared for future incidents. Do, do we think that'll work though? I mean, realistically, I mean, they're saying in this story here about it, it uh, you know, making, uh, being able to track in real time the owners of the drones. I mean, realistically, how on earth is that ever going to be possible? I I, I thought that you know the posh drones, the DJI Phantoms and stuff. I mean, I haven't got one. Have you got a drone? Jack? No, I haven't got one. No. They're supposed to have a geofencing um, system on them, so it, it stops them from being uh, operated in, uh, <clears throat> in and around any any major airport. But obviously, anything mm. is hackable these days. I mean, you can hack anything uh, with the knowledge yeah. and stuff like that. But um, it, you know, in in Dubai, uh, I mean, in, Nev, in I Dubai, mean, what, what? I was, yeah, I was saying Dubai, where everything is, you know, is is quite electronics are quite cheap to purchase. I'm surprised there's not been more incidents like this um, mm. uh, happening in Dubai. Do Do you think there's any realistic way, Nev, that they can sort of do this though, make it? Um, so that they can i mean this whole idea of doing it real time i just literally cannot think of any because I mean, you think you look back to the um the gatwick thing and as carlos saying obviously that it got all geofencing and everything all built into it you know my drone that i've got if i try and float in an airport it's literally like it hits a a you know metaphoric fence if you like it'll go to a point and then stop even at beckles it'll stop you know you can't fly into airspace that is as classed as you know where where planes are i mean if they're hacking it and stuff, I mean, can you think of any way that they can get round? You know, they can make it so that they do stop. I think there's there's always <clears throat> ways of doing things, but the thing that I would say about it is, if you're going to do that, don't do it near Dubai because the uh, the penalties are massive. I would imagine, <laughs> like doing naughty things in Singapore. You know, just yeah. don't do it because. Yeah. It will go wrong big time. So uh, I, I think the problem is now that uh, the authorities. I mean, they know what's going on here, and there will be people that 
you know, flout the law, and they try to uh, to do stuff. And but as you say, most uh, drones today have got uh, geofencing capability, so you can't fly it uh, outside mm. certain coordinates. So I mean, you go back to the, the the Gatwick issue, obviously, and and half of the issue with with that is the fact that essentially that drone must have been hacked. So I mean, you how do you prevent? I mean, it's like iPhones. You're not supposed to be hack, be able to hack those, but you can jailbreak them and and put on counterfeit software and things. I mean, presumably that's what's happening with these these drones. I, I can't see how you get around it. I can't see how you can physically stop someone who's that determined to cause you know airport chaos. I don't know how you I don't know how you stop it. No, I think what I would say really is that no matter what. Um, thing. If it's a bit like breaking into a house, isn't it? You know, if if you can have the most secure house going, and the most sophisticated alarm system and all the rest of it, and if someone's determined enough to to get in, that they will. They'll find I th- a way. I think you can apply that to this this sort of thing as well. I'm absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Or just legislation, like, just stop selling them, and you you have to have a a stringent license before you can buy one. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you there, Stuart. Obviously, you're talking perfect sense. I, the, the thing is, is I, you know, I got, I was lucky enough that I got a, an amazing drone for Christmas. It's the coolest present I've ever had in my life. I have so much fun flying it. Oh, but you just, see, again, you're not allowed it, to have fun. That's what we have the government for. So they will put a license. Oh, I on see. It. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. I hadn't thought that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but how about like reversing it completely and making designated drone flying areas? That way, anybody who flies outside it is flouting the rules. The rules. Yeah. And yeah, you know, work. you you do it with the radio uh, aircraft already. You know, like. Before the drones were there, people would have miniature airplanes that they flew from, from small. Yeah, like, model flying club areas. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So why not do that for drones as well? I don't think. Yeah. I, I, don't, I think that option is there. I think the problem is it's the just being blatant. It's the intelligence of the people operating them, not you, Matt. <laughs> but you know, the fact <laughs> is, Joe <laughs> blocks off the street without a clue about anything aviation related can can buy one in Toys R Us for twenty pounds or something and. Yeah. And not have the foggiest inkling of oh where I can and can't operate it. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because you can buy all these expensive drones that have all the technology in them to stop them, say, going into airspace and stuff like that. But the fact of the matter is, if Joe Bloggs wants to go and buy a drone, he can buy one for five hundred pound or one hundred pound. Likelihood is probably going to buy the one hundred pound one. Yeah, because and the one that is going to and the one that is going to cause infringements of airspace and all the trouble. Yeah. Um, probably. Yeah. So. And did, did, Stuart, did you get affected by the drone ac- activity at Gatwick at all? In uh, any way? It did cause up some problems on um, Europe control flight plans. So we did have a few delays just because of flight plan issues. But. That's interesting. Because it affected my training. Yeah. Uh, I was supposed to um, be, uh, when Gatwick was shut, a lot of the flights were all um, diverted into airports around by, one of them being Southend. And Southend was one of the airports where we did a lot of our instrument rating training. We'd go and fly into them. And uh, they actually called me before one of my flights saying, we're going to have to cancel your slot because we're going to be too busy of inbound EasyJet aircraft coming from Gatwick. Oh, of course, yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, we, um, I, and I was one of many flights, uh, although my, my instructor did go up before me, uh, before before my actual flight. He did say that, yeah, Southend was just full. It was full to capacity of mm. aircraft. And, and that's, that's not a big airport either. No, I'm not really, at all. No, I was going to say, you get a couple of, you know, a couple of A320s and a... In a, in a 7.3 in there, and that's fairly, fairly packed. Mm. So moving on, 
to the next story on the list and this one is on the uh, usnews.com and uh, it's an aircraft that's uh, been uh, well been doing some drifting on a wet runway and this is a Lion Air aircraft skidding off runway at an Indonesian airport so a passenger aircraft uh, slid off a runway outside a city in the Indonesian island of Borneo uh, during heavy rain, the airline said, adding no one was injured. The aircraft was operating a Jakarta uh, Pontnak service with 182 passengers and seven crew members on board. Uh, Lion Air spokesman Danang Mandala Printaro said in a statement, uh, the Boeing 737-800 aircraft skidded off the runway as it was trying to land at Sopadio International Airport, a regional hub airport that serves a small number of international flights. Local media reported the incident uh, led to the closure of the runway and representatives uh, for Supadio Airport as well as Indonesian air traffic control provider AirNav did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Lion Air, uh, the market leader in Indonesia, suffered uh, the crash of the 737 MAX jet in October last year. And uh, as it has, it says here, according to the Aviation Safety Network, it has had 11 safety incidents since 2002. Uh, Printaro said uh, Lion Air was working to evaluate the plane and the, that uh, visibility had met landing requirements. Um, not really a lot else to say. Uh, Stuart, any thoughts on that? Uh, actually, I'm really sorry. I'm just getting hundreds of messages oh, he's <laughs> on LinkedIn, MSN, and WhatsApp oh, from different airline pilots. Then I've had like five recruiters, okay. so I'm really sorry. Oh, excellent. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so I, I, I was looking this one up, and it's actually, I counted 16 incidents for Lion Air uh, since 2002. And one of those incidents was actually a. 737-400 at the same airport that overran the runway in rain and ended up in the exact same spot. Um, so I have sort of a opposing, two opposing comments on this one. Um, there's definitely a training issue here, right? So I think, you know, the, these airlines have to take, especially they're sort of under the, the you know, under the, the the spotlight right now and I think they need to be taking their training seriously they need to be taking more conservative responses um, to their flying and, and especially in adverse weather conditions they need to be doing a little bit more flight planning in hey if we're not down on the ground by a certain point as most airline and military pilots do you know it's time for a go around now the opposing viewpoint to that is my brother flew in in indonesia uh for two years he was flying crjs he said a lot of those airports don't have the option to go around even if it's raining they're vfr airports the terrain is incredibly challenging um, short runways and uh so indonesia for commercial aviation is is extremely challenging um but i but i think Lion Air needs to do something with their with their training right now. I mean, obviously, I mean, you you say that Armando, obviously, but presumably, you know, Lion Air isn't the only uh, airline, if you like, that's flying in Indonesia, and um, presumably the other airlines who are flying into these also tricky airports aren't having the well, for want of a better word, the failure rates perhaps that that Lion Air appear to be having. 
Well, I think Lion Air has the, you know, the share of the market right now. Garuda is the other, the sort of the flagship carrier in Indonesia, and they've had their share of, of incidents also. They just, yeah. um, they, I think about five years ago, Garuda revamped their whole way of doing business. They brought in some Western trained pilots. Um, I think 30, it was either 30 or 60 of them. I can't remember just to come in and mentor their pilots for a couple years and their safety record improved exponentially. Wow. So I think, I think Lion Air needs to solo, maybe follow their lead. Yeah. So moving on to the next story, and uh, the next one, Matt, is one for you, and this one is on the bbc.co.uk website regarding your favourite airline and uh, another mishap <laughs> at an airport. Right, okay. So this one, as I say, as Carl said, it's on the BBC uh, website, and the headline is Ryan Airplane Damaged Instance airport 177 passengers on board was damaged when it reversed into an airport barrier a report has found it was being moved by a tug into a parking area at Stansted airport on the 30th of april last year to wait for its takeoff slot accident investigators said bad weather reduced visibility for ground crew who failed to stop the aircraft before part of its tail hit a blast fence plane needed to be repaired but nobody was injured. A report by the Air Accidents Investigation Branch said that a cabin crew member called the flight deck to say she thought the back of the plane had hit something as it was being pushed back from the gate. Engineers were called and found part of the tail had struck a blast fence, a safety device that redirects the powerful blast of jet engines at airports. Uh, damage was found to one of the elevators, which was which are used to control an aircraft's ascent and rise. The tug driver said heavy rain and the standing water made ground markings difficult to see. The uh, report also found the headset operator who was standing on the tarmac and communicated with the flight deck and the tug driver was still in his training period and had been working alone. Right, that's slightly worrying. Uh, there were also there were 170 passengers and seven crew on board at the time, but uh, none were injured and all were able to leave the plane using the steps as normal. Ryanair operates around 400 flights a day from London Stansted Airport in Essex, which is its UK base. Do you know I've mm. I've, I've, I've flown from uh, well flown from the Stansted quite a number of times with EasyJet, and this area is pretty big. Yeah, this area this, this is in is not a small area. I mean, on the pic, there is a picture on the uh, on the BBC uh, website that shows you, mm. um, you know, the actual picture of the incident itself. And you know, this area here is is a big area. I'm surprised, you know, with all that room, that the guy who's obviously you know pushing back the aircraft is not, you know, it meant, it, it. Yeah, it mentioned also not great visibility. I think didn't it? Well, I'm looking at that picture. Um, I think the visibility is not ball. too bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to be fair, this could be later. It was maybe could night be. time and heavy rain. We don't. Was it late or night? I don't know. Don't know. Does it say when it when yeah. it actually happened? It is a big red white wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a big red and white blast wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a bit, a bit. Uh, yeah. Mm. I like yeah. the way these Ryanair stories don't come out at the time. They seem to be quite good at keeping it secret, don't they? It was thirtieth of April last year. Yeah. All these reports come out. So yeah. They're good at. They're, they've got some good PR people who keep the incidents quiet. To quiet, oh, okay. yeah, which is why we all, we all love the Aviation Herald website because we get to see all the kind of latest new you know news on it, stuff that doesn't 
kind of make mainstream uh, mm. in their mainstream stories. So that's good. Mm. So last story mm. then, Nev uh, is uh, is one for you. It's uh, well, it's it's good if you've got a bit of money lying down the back of the sofa. Yes, it's on the Bloomberg website, and uh, it says that uh, Airbus will swell its fleet of Beluga XL wing transporters to six aircraft and is beginning to sound out potential buyers for the original version of the bulbous model. Uh, the Airbus board has agreed to add an extra Beluga, named for its resemblance to the dome-headed white whale, to the original specification for five in order to shuttle more parts around Europe as jetliner build rates increase, program chief uh, Bernard George said in an interview. Uh, Airbus wants to offload the original Belugas once it has three of the larger XL planes in service by the end of 2020 and has begun approaching potential new users, George said on uh, Thursday at the company's wing plant in Broughton in Wales after the first test plane touched down. These might include uh, specialist operates uh, such as Cargo Lux and Russian outsized freight carrier Volga Dnepr group. Uh, the Airbus A330-based XL features the same low-slung cockpit as the original developed two decades ago, allowing the front hinge to open, but is six metres longer and a metre wider. And that's big enough to carry both wings for the newest A350 widebody, rather than its predecessor's one, which is what the disadvantage was, which could only carry one. So that's going to be a huge uh, uh, improvement for them, but they've got to... Uh, sell the other ones as well somehow yeah i was looking nev uh these the unit costs on these belugas uh when they were first brought into service fresh off the line 183 million euros oh okay <laughs> so uh, it, uh, it's uh, you know i wonder what the second hand price is on one of these you know if they're going to yeah. flog the if airbus are going to flog these off second hand obviously they've got they're going to have to make them um make, make a good price but i wonder Who's going to buy these? Well, I, think, I think there is a really good option for the Russians. Because uh, I remember seeing a documentary about the, um, I don't know if it's that particular company, um, but one of these Russian outsized cargo operators, and they were operating the giant Antonov and the, the slightly smaller Antonovs. But they're constantly reservicing them, and they were saying about they are limited on hours with them because of the ages of the airframes. Mm. So there is just physically they're running out of hours on some of the aircraft they've got. So they'll, they would possibly take these at a reduced price if it just fills the gap because I think they're talking about rebuilding a new Antonov cargo version variant mm. so that can be out in the future but there's going to be that time gap in the middle where the, something like this might work for them yeah we'll have to uh, save up the pennies for that won't we we'll see, we'll <laughs> see what happens with that so uh, moving on with the show that's the end of the commercial news segment uh, for this week and uh, we are well we've got some military news uh, to get on with so i suppose we, we really ought to crack on with some military news so if everyone's ready yes yeah yeah all good yep let's go okay <laughs> Probably helps if I uh, take my microphone off mute there. That um, <laughs> all right. So this first story is uh, from thedrive.com, and it is about the uh, B1s uh, and B2s and B21s. One of Jonathan uh, Warner's favorites. Well, I mean, 
<clears throat> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is this story goes on to say if you are a military aviation aficionado uh, or even interested in military technology, the Air Force's new plan to repi- retire both the swing wing, oh my gosh, the swing wing B1 bone and the B2A spirit earlier than originally planned is probably going to upset some to some degree. Uh, uh, bombers, Carlos, you caught me off guard on this one. So <laughs> I was reading the show notes. Um, let's see. Bombers in particular uh, capture the public's imagination and interest like no other combat aircraft. And everyone seems to have a favorite. But the harsh reality is that once the new B-21 Raider comes online in the next decade, there won't be room for four bombers in the services or portfolio. Uh February 11, 2017, Aviation Week reported that the U.S. Air Force has draft, uh, created an updated bomber vector, basically its future roadmap for bomber platforms, which includes divesting the B-1 and the B-2 by the mid-2030s. <clears throat> These decisions orbit around what we believe is the most important program in the USAF's portfolio at this time, which is the B-21 Raider. Although it's designated as a bomber, it will certainly be able to perform those traditional missions. It is a stealthy, high-flying, multi-mission and highly flexible platform that can reach out over long distances and touch the enemy without relying on nearby trans, uh, tanker support. Let's see, the Air Force says it needs at least 100 B-21s, but many within the service and uh, external to it are calling for a fleet much larger than that. The Air Force looks like it's uh, or actually, under the original plan, the Air Force was going to keep the B-1 until 2040 and the B-52 around the same time frame. But under this new plan, the B-2 is going to be retired first, uh, no later than 2032. And the B-1 was going to put out, uh, be put out to pasture about 2036. Um, so the big winner in this is actually the B-52. Um, it's going to come out of this untouched through the 2050s with a real possibility that the bomber could reach its 100th birthday while still in service. That's crazy. That's a sane number, isn't it? Yeah, it's turned out to be a very capable, flexible asset. Um, This plan opens up funds for the B-52H to get some serious upgrades, uh, most important which are new engines, which will make the jet more reliable and economical but it will also unlock new payload range and airfield performance. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit it, and it, it goes on to talk about the maintenance hours. So for a B1, it takes 74 hours of maintenance for every hour that's, that it flies. The B2 is at 45 hours of maintenance. Those are probably man hours, not physical hours. And the B52 is right around 62 man hours of maintenance. Um, but these uh, mission completion rates, so the B-52 is hovering still right around 80% over the last five years with the B-1 around 40% and the B-2 around 35% mission completion rate. So, I was just looking on, on, uh, on the, the wonderful Wikipedia and I uh, didn't realize the B-1 um, first flew in 1974. That's, wow. uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's doing well. Introducing the service in 1986, and um, 
yeah, two hundred eighty-three million dollars will um, will get you one of those at uh, at nineteen, mind you, at nineteen ninety-eight prices. Mm. So, uh, yeah, four <laughs> four hundred million dollars uh, in today's uh, money for one of those. But uh, I know, yeah, um, right. So you, I know that. Go uh, ahead, Carlos. Yeah, I know Jonathan uh, Jonathan Warner. He um, he he sent me a few pictures of, of uh, some of these a while back now, which he'd taken. I think it was at Fairford, Aria Fairford. And um, it is awesome to see. These are oh, yeah. some pretty nice bits of kit. Ah, the see. Vulcan bomber. That is definitely my <laughs> my second favourite bomber. <laughs> yeah. But uh, with those retractable wings, that's that's where the maintenance is. It's like us with the tornadoes retracting those as well. Um, it's the, it's just too much, isn't it? And uh, the fuel burn, uh, the the B fifty two because it's quite easy to adjust the engines because they're just wing mounted pods, so they can change yep. them. They've already changed them like two, three times in their versions now, haven't they? Um, yeah, that's actually a really good point, and the the fact that it doesn't have the variable geometry, you can you can hang anything off the wing of a B-52, any kind of weapons, without major modifications. So, um, and then the other part of that is the sheer speed, right? So the 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 B-1 is always being stressed because they're flying it like it's designed to be fly, flown, mm. while the while the B-52 is just sort of a slow lumbering thing that's not subjected to too much stress. So. Mm. Naturally, any airplane is going to last longer. Yeah. So the next story is uh, on the popularmechanicswebsite.com. And uh, this one, the headline, a U-2 spy plane is flying over Northern California pretending to be the Starship Enterprise. Well, I couldn't think of anything better, really, to, to try and be like because, uh, yeah go Star Trek Generations. Anyway, the uh, the story, one of the US Air Force's secretive planes is pretending to be a vessel from the far, far future. The 23rd century, in fact. A U-2 spy plane took off from Northern California uh, this week, broadcasting the aviation code NCC-1701 Alpha, which, as all Star Trek fans will know, is the designation for the USS Enterprise. Kirk's one, to be exact. I was going to say, which variant? Yeah, Very Kirk's one. Uh, the, twi the Twitter account uh, air at aircraft spot monitors military aircraft movements, typically through the Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, ADSB, uh, aircraft tracking systems. Such transmitters are required in all civil aircraft across the United States to help other pilots and controllers ID them. Some US military aircraft are equipped with the system too. ADSB is a uh, boon to plane spotters, allowing hobbyists on the ground to watch the comings and goings of vast numbers of aircraft. Today, the uh, aircraft spots account noticed the unusual ADSB signal emanating from an aircraft that had recently taken off from Beale Air Force Base. Beale is notable as being the headquarters of the 9th Reconnaissance Wing and home to U-2 Dragon Lady T-38 Talon and the RQ-4 Global Hawk aircraft and maybe, just maybe, starships belonging to the United Federation of Planets. The unusual signal was emanating from aircraft 80-1093, a number that signifies the aircraft is a U-2 spy plane, and the flight number was NCC-1701A. In Star Trek canon, NCC, uh, the Enterprise A, was a Constitution-class starship built at the San Francisco Fleet shipyards. Beale Air Force Base is just two and a half hours northeast of San Francisco, uh, in, in 2020, uh, 2286, 
and uh, it was commanded by James T. Kirk at the end of the movie Star Trek VI, after the events of Star Trek III resulted in the destruction of the original, original NCC-1701. Uh, although U-2 spy planes are capable of long, uh, long, nearly starship-level voyages, this NCC-1701A is sticking close to home, flying a, tra a, tra a trapezoidal pattern over Northern California. After a steep ascent, the, uh, the aircraft levelled out at 400 knots airspeed at an altitude of 60,000 feet. That's about 20,000 feet higher than commercial airliners. Space technology does not begin until the Kármán line at 330,000 feet, so this is definitely no spaceship, no matter what the designation says. And this is not the first time. I've seen uh, stories like this before where uh, airlines and stuff have, uh, have altered the, um, the, you know, the, the code they transmit on, on the ADS-B. Uh, but, uh, I mean, what an awesome code to transmit for you know, <laughs> the, the old Star Trek code. That's a good good story. That is Armando. Well done for that. <laughs> hey, we have to have a little bit of fun uh, when we're playing around. <laughs> Too right. Yeah. So pity he didn't. What he should have done. This guy should have um, done the outline of the Enterprise. That's that's what I was wondering. Did he do it yeah. for flight radar? And he then, should uh, have do done that. that for flight. Yeah. Where they where they draw the actual aircraft on the yeah. uh, on the screen. That yeah. would have been good. Well, it'd make a change from phallic objects, which is what most most of them seem to do these days. <laughs> Oh dear! So moving on, Matt. Did See, you that's, want... that's the difference between the Navy and the Air Force. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Matt, no man has gone before. <laughs> Do you want to take yeah, well, the, uh, the next story, Matt? On yes, indeed. The yeah, indeed. If I may, also actually, somebody who doesn't normally watch the show but is uh, is uh, watching, and I don't, I don't know if he's worked out how to do the chat room. That may be one technical technical step too far. But uh, Stuart, you'll know who who this is as well. So everybody, say very quickly to uh, hello to Geordie. Hello, Geordie. Hello, uh, hello Geordie. <laughs> I know, absolutely. Uh, he's he's watching briefly because he hasn't slept for a very long time and is in need of some kind of way of nodding off. And he felt that the best way to do that was to watch our show, which I think is um, probably very sensible. So uh, there we are. So yes, uh, this will probably be the only time that he watches the show as well. So <laughs> that'll be it. Anyway, hello, Geordie. <laughs> anyway, onto the story. Uh, Airway One is the uh, website, and the headline is Airbus and Dassault announce partnership to develop sixth generation de generation fighter so the governments of germany and france have granted the first contract to manufacturers airbus and dassault to Dasso. jointly develop the first the, the what sorry dasso dasso oh, yeah, right. yeah. oh dear pronunciations <laughs> so say that again so i get it dasso. right Dasso, okay, Dasso. all right then. So the governments of Germany and France have granted the first contract to manufacturers Airbus and Dasso to jointly develop the first conceptual studies for the Future Combat Air System, the FCAS uh, program that is expected to originate um, a Friday fighter aircraft generation by 2040. The announcement was made by the French military minister Florence Parley and her German colleague, Ursula von der Leyen at a meeting in Paris on Wednesday, the 6th of February. In a statement, uh, the two companies said that the decision represents a milestone to ensure European sovereignty and technological leadership in the military aviation industry in the coming decades. The work, scheduled to last two years, will begin on the 20th of 
February. This new step is the cornerstone to ensure tomorrow's European strategic of autonomy. Uh, we, Dassault Aviation, will mobilize our, our competitor, com dear, oh our competencies as a system architect and integrator to meet the requirements of the nations and to keep our commitment as a world leader in the crucial fight of uh, in the crucial field of air combat systems, says Eric Trappier, who's the chairman and CEO of uh, Dassault Aviation, uh, Dassault Aviation. <laughs> Dirk Hoke, who is the CEO of Airbus Defence and Space, said FCAS is one of the most ambitious European defence programmes of the century with today's contract signature. We are finally setting this high technology technology program uh, fully in motion. Both companies are committed to providing the best solutions in our nations with regard to the new generation fighter as well as the systems of um, the system of systems accompanying it. We are truly excited about having this opportunity and appreciate the trust in both our companies. Yeah, I think this is uh, probably a great uh, partnership between two well-established companies. I, I always think it's funny to read these stories because there's not that many people making, you know, defense products and fighter planes and bombers and things like that. So when I see collaborations between two big companies, it, it usually turns out pretty well. And this is great for, you know, for Europe to uh, develop their next generation fighter too. And it seems like only 10 minutes ago, we got the F-35 and now they're already on about, um, you know, designing something um, even more space age well yeah and I, and I think since the story was published the spanish got on board with this uh program too you're gonna say Stu? i was just saying it's a constant race isn't it it's always we don't know what the enemy are doing so we've always got to keep developing we have no enemies dangerous world so moving on to uh to the next or the last story and uh nev i think this is um this last story is 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 awesome i love stories like this when it's uh you know a bit about the discovery of stuff like this. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's on the uh, warbirdsnews.com. And uh, they say, today we received incredible news from the late Paul Allen uh, deep ocean research vessel, the RV Petrol, that the research team aboard had located and documented the long lost wreck of the World War II aircraft carrier USSS, sorry, USS Hornet. Uh, this breathtaking news comes just under a year after the same organization located another historic battle of Midway aircraft carrier CV-2 USS Lexington. And uh, haunting images have been emerging from almost 18,000 feet down in the South Pacific, which show peaceful scenes on the ocean floor, defying the carnage inflicted on the day of her sinking 77 years ago during the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands. Whilst the news is still filtering in, uh, <clears throat> the website thought they would share the official reports coming from Paul Allen's website. And uh, they go into some detail here, but uh, <coughs> excuse me, it says that the, the ship was sunk during the exceptionally vicious Battle of Santa Cruz Island that started on October the 25th, 1942. Uh, Hornet proved an especially determined ship over the next 24 hours. And during a relentless coordinated attack by Japanese dive bombers and torpedo planes, her crew was ultimately forced to abandon ship due to damage and resulting fires. She then defied American efforts to scuttle her with 16 torpedoes 
and 369 rounds of five-inch shells. When Japanese uh, forces approached shortly thereafter and fired four torpedoes from two Japanese destroyers late in the evening, October 26, Hornet finally succumbed and slipped beneath the surface. She lost 111 sailors from her crew of nearly 2,200. Uh, absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? That they've uh, that they found this, and um, but um, it's well, only when you start reading the story like that, you realise the amount of uh, devastation and the amount of military hardware uh, mm. going into this thing. So uh, yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah, so you definitely got to take yourselves over to the warbirdnews.com website. They've got um, they've got a few pictures um, of of the uh, the ship itself, the USS Hornet. Um, one of them is uh, a picture of the ship itself, and there's another great picture of. Uh, one of the uh, B-25s taking off from uh, from the flight deck, um, which was um, obviously part of the raid. And actually, there's oh, is there some pictures. A, a lovely full working tractor available there. <laughs> is that on the? Uh, that's on that's the website. one of their pictures that they've got from underwater. All oh, right. So what website is that on? It's on Jake, what's that one? So it's on the WarbirdsNews.com uh, website. The, the we have that article, and at the bottom, it's got some pictures of what they actually. Uh, ah, yeah. of the uh, wreckage itself. It looks in very good nick considering it's been at the bottom of the sea for 60 odd years or something. So we're finding a Norfolk farm, that would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah, I, I used to have a model of the USS Hornet because I was just completely enthralled by the, by the B-25 when I was a kid. So I had a model of the Hornet on my desk. Um, when I, when I was in high school, just because I thought it was uh, amazing what they did on that Doolittle raid. So, yeah. I'd say what's amazing, cool. there's a map as well with all the other sinking sites. It's just incredible, like all the other ships that were sunk at the time. Um, but they didn't, you said it was quite good. There was only, um, I say only, but only 100 or so, 111 sailors from the crew of 2,200. So that's quite good odds, surely, for the time. So most of them survived then, somehow. Did, where, did, they, did they swim? Did the Japanese rescue them? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's one of the, it's one of those things that you need to go and watch the uh, National Geographic channel for. There's probably a, a documentary on uh, on this, I expect, somewhere mm. in the uh, in the realms. So that brings the Indeed. military news to a close. And uh, before we start to wrap up the show, we obviously have got uh, Jake Mears with us here in the studio this week. And uh, Jake uh, has been uh, well. He he's kind of uh, started off in the PPL uh, uh, seat and you've kind of progressed on Jake over the over the time uh, to where you are now so you just want to tell us a bit about uh, where things all start for you Jake yeah well I think like so many people's dream when they were a child when they first started seeing airplanes in the sky and they first got fascinated by it and then everyone probably remembers their first time when they went on an airplane and mine was no different absolutely loved it when it was the days of being able to go up to a cockpit when I was a a five-year-old or however old I was, probably younger than that. Yeah, and I absolutely loved it. Now, it's funny, really, I'm 27 now. I probably started my PPO when I was 24. It took me a little while, probably a, bit, a good bit of maturity to sort of think, no, I can actually give the whole pilot thing a go. It's um, I was In my particular class, I've, I've now got my full CPL, MEIR, and I've done my MCC course as well. It, um, on my course, there's plenty of, uh, there was plenty of, 
18, 19, 20 year olds. And I was, I definitely, I didn't have the maturity at that age to even think about giving this a go. I wouldn't have stuck through it, if you know what I mean. It took, mm. it took a lot of effort. And Stuart, all the pilots know how hard it is. It's a hell of a hard thing to uh, to accomplish. I'm very proud of that I've been able to do it. I'm not a, uh, I, you know, I wasn't, I'm not blessed of intelligence. <laughs> 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 but you know, we, we, it's, it's a hell of a lot of work. Uh, but we got there in the end. So yeah, I've been. I started my uh, BPL at Beckles. And, uh, Stuart next to me took me, I don't know, five, six hours training, yeah, something yeah. like that, I should think. Uh, and then yeah, finished it at uh, other airfields around um, around the Norfolk Suffolk area. And then I've been doing all my training down at Stapleford Flight Centre, just on the outskirts of London, uh, which I do highly recommend. It's very very good training facilities they got there. I was very impressed with it. So we've um, done your dual engine. Done all of that. Yeah. So I've got my uh, did my uh, so I did my commercial. I did my all my eight, uh, ATPL theory. The fourteen exams it took about eight months, something <laughs> like that. Yeah, eight months of pretty much six days a week 12 hours a day studying for me not everyone has to do that much but I knew I had to do that to get through it so I completed that uh, did some hour building you know mainly in a Piper warrior um, all over the U quite a lot quite a lot all over the UK but went over Europe as well flying over uh, did some flying in Germany and Austria which was good fun uh, recreated the dam busters flying over the Mahisa dam I think I saw that on your Instagram yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah, I, I did enjoy that was quite special um, and yeah, uh, did my commercial license in a Piper Arrow, which I is my favourite aeroplane I've flown so far. I love that aeroplane; I think it's great. Um, probably better aeroplanes out there that do the same job, but for me, that was uh, that's my favourite I've flown so far. Yep, I did my multi-engine rating in a, a Seneca PA34, and then my instrument rating in a Diamond DA42. Which I think is quite common. I think a lot of people do them in the DA forty twos these days. With glass cockpit. Any any favourites out of all those? It, the, definitely the Arrow. Hundred okay. percent the Arrow. Yeah, I, I I don't know what it was about the aeroplane. I just liked the the DA forty two was for me a bit too a bit too plastic and it didn't have all the nice rattles and stuff like that. Which <laughs> I, you, get, I like, you know, it's, I don't know, it's something mechanical I liked about the Arrow, which seemed quite nice yeah. to fly. It was very sturdy. Very, mm. it flew beautifully. I thought. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely the favourite aircraft I've flown to, to date, definitely. Yeah. And where, where did you do your MCC course? I also did my MCC course at Stapleford. Oh, okay. They also provide an MCC. They've been, I've, I think they've been doing their um, practical training for a long time, haven't they? Many, many years. The theory they provide, the ATPL theory, they've been doing for probably five or six years, something along those lines, and the MCC. A bit shorter than that, three or four years. And I a think. jock. So that's the next. It step. was actually the uh, it was I actually, combined. I actually did the latest APS MCC course, which is the latest all singing, all dancing MCC they do, which is a forty-hour simulator course, oh. and there's a jock included in that. Okay, so, so you've done. Yeah, MCC jock or the APS as they're just sort of calling it now. Oh, okay. A question from Andy Wilson in the chat room, Jake. Uh, how did you find the DA forty-two? It was nice to. It was quite a nice thing to fly. Um, it was. Um, it was a lot, lot easier to fly than the Seneca. Mm. Um, the especially one of the things you do when you're doing your instrument rating and your your multi-engine rating, you're flying. You do an awful. You, you learn to fly on one engine, so you simulate all the engine failures that you're getting. It's the most important thing to train for, really, and the to to. 
to go through the engine failure drills on the DA40 on the DA42 was a hell of a lot easier than the Seneca. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot less to do. Put it that way. Um, on the other hand, even though the drills were a lot more simple, the rudder input that you had to put in on the DA42 is you don't need to go to the gym afterwards. Put it that way. It's a, it's a hard, hard job on the DA42 uh, compared to the uh, Seneca, which has got a much, much bigger rudder. And uh, wow. bigger surface area, yeah. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's not not much, not as much of an issue for the uh, Seneca. I think I put the important question. I think you've got to ask is uh, what was Jake like as a student, uh, Stuart? Oh, he was he was very good and diligent, and uh, he 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 carried on, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing here, Stuart. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, it was just unfortunate at the time at Beckles. It wasn't well. There was a whole lot of training issues at Beckles, so you had to cease. And so you went to Ruffham, did you? Oh uh, yeah, Skyward so Flight Training at Ruffham. I so went to finish it. Yeah, I mean, it would have been great to do more flying together, but unfortunately, it was uh, the issues at Beckles. They so ceased trading temporarily. So that's right. Um, but yeah, no, it was, yeah. yeah we had some good. We had some good fun, didn't we? Yeah. Also went up in the uh, caravan as well at one time. I'd yeah, come up with I had that experience. Well. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Fun. Yeah, yeah, that was a. That was an experience I'll never another, forget. Another question from uh, Andy Wilson in the chat room says, where to for you next, Jake? Great question. Um, I'm currently, I am waiting for the CAA to issue my uh, ratings on my licence and I'm applying for all the airlines as we speak. Uh, that's where I want to be. That's the uh, That's been the ambition since I was a child is to be an airline pilot. So I'm applying for the airlines. I've applied for some, and I'm going to apply for those I can that take on low hours pilots. Um, how, how many hours have you got just off the top of your two, head? Uh, including the MCC course, I've got 290 okay. now. Um, something along those lines. That's obviously in simulator time included in mm. that. Um, yeah, I, a lot of the airlines, when you fill out application forms on their on their websites, you can't apply for them until you've, get, you've got your licence in your hand because you need to scan it in. Prove you've got it. So that's kind of a bit of a bugbear at the moment. Is waiting for the CAA to issue things and uh, just yeah. So that's that's where next applying for um, any airlines that'll take on low hours pilots. And uh, Tony S has asked, uh, did you consider going abroad for flight training? Um, probably for about one minute. Not very long to be honest with you. It's I, cheaper. It's apparently it, cheaper. Yeah, it is. Um, I've heard. Uh, I heard a place. I've heard. I've got no people that have trained in Sweden. I think it's the only thing in Sweden that is cheaper to do is flying. It's a strange one, really. <laughs> okay. But um, I, I didn't consider it much. I was um, taking lots of things on board when it was. Uh, it came to think about where I was going to live and how I was going to fund things. And it was near Stapleford Flight Centre. I was, I was fortunate to have family nearby who I could stay with whilst I was down there. Oh, that makes a big difference. Yeah. Made a big difference. Mm. Um, so saved several thousand pounds in living costs and stuff like that, really. So trying to do it as to the to, to as, trying to do it as well as I could, try and keep the try and keep the cost down. I know it could have been cheaper to fly the aircraft abroad, but as far as the whole package it was probably a little bit cheaper to do it. Um, where I did it in, in at Stapleford. Mm. And as costs go, they seem to be rather quite very very competitive I think I thought it was good yeah all in all. Nev Armando any questions for Jake before we start to wrap up um, I was just going to ask you uh, Jake what um, how long ago did you start flying when, when was your um, how old were you when you uh, we began it on I started my PPL uh, about three and a half years ago something like that 
Um, I was doing my PPL training whilst I was still working. Um, took a couple of years to complete, doing it sort of part-time. I completed, I started full-time training, so i done my commercial training all full-time. I started that on September 4th, 2017, and I finished I finished everything uh, in Jan uh, last last month, the 20th of January last month, yeah. So about 18, uh, 17 odd months full-time, and then a couple of years just uh, part-time PPL training prior to that, yeah. Armando? No, I don't really have anything to add other than just, uh, man, wish you the best. And, you know, I look forward to hearing uh, about your path forward, especially going to the airline since in the U.S., you, you know, it's you got to have at least 1,000 hours, 1,200 hours before you can even apply. Yeah, so, uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Times are changing, aren't they? Um, I know a lot of 250-odd-hour flying time pilots who are getting employed by the airlines at the moment times have definitely changed which is very good for me <laughs> don't get me wrong <laughs> great for me um but yeah it's um yeah also, also, thank you i appreciate you i appreciate appreciate the best wishes thank you but armando you have yeah. got you've got one last question to ask uh, jake haven't you <laughs> absolutely it's uh, <laughs> it's always our favorite question so uh jake think I know what's coming here. <laughs> you know what's coming. If you had the choice, any airplane, present, past, future, uh, not even in existence, what would be the what would be your choice of airplane to fly? I've struggled to nail this down to a couple already. Um, I've, I've got. I think. I, I think. I was thinking on this on my drive here, and I was. Uh, I was. I think I've got it down to sort of three. Three? You can only have one. Yeah, but I've got it down to three. <sighs> yeah. I, I. I like. I like how engine. I like how airplanes sound. But mm. I thought, for a kid, I loved the Mustang P fifty one. Loved it. So yeah. I think I'd choose that as. That so the sound of a Mustang. The sound of a Mustang. The looks of. <laughs> sound of a Mustang. The looks of a Gulfstream G six fifty. And um, yeah, no. As, as I think my favourite airplane, I'd really love to fly in the airline world is a seven fifty seven. So that's the one for me. I'd love to oh, have an opportunity God. to fly one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know oh, Carlos man. likes. Yeah, I like those. Um, but I don't. Sadly, I don't think my time. I think I've come a little bit too late to probably fly one of those in the airlines world. So maybe I'll fly as predecessor. If it It'll try me. and kill you. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll have no, to do the, the seven nine seven. Yeah, that's the one. So yeah. there'll yeah. still be plenty of seven fifty sevens flying around for charter airlines. I think so. Yeah. If it's your dream airplane, don't give up on it. That's right. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. So mer merge all those together, and that's the, that's what I will fly. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that'd be quite a beast. <laughs> so that is where we're going to wrap up uh, episode number two hundred and fifty-six this week. It's been an epic show. That's uh, definitely one for sure. And uh, I think Matt's going to have some uh, fun with the editing suite this week for sure. I have no idea how I'm going to piece the show together as of this technical farce. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, it's about ten introductions here for you. To choose <laughs> yeah, from. absolutely. I've got plenty to choose from. Certainly, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So don't forget you can uh, you can catch us on uh, 
the internet www.plaintalkinguk.com you can find us the website there we've got the t-shirt sales part of the website is now fully up and running and we have got a fresh delivery of some new PTUK t-shirts as well uh, which you can click on the links there on the website and uh, actually Myla is wearing one I'll just cut to that camera there you can see Myla has her PTUK t-shirt on there with the embroidered, lovely embroidered logo. So you can uh, click on the website and uh, you can purchase one of those uh, as well, but not the bear. I'll just cut back to that. <laughs> We're not doing the bears. <laughs> we should definitely do bears. <laughs> uh, don't forget, you can uh, also email the show podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. You can also email the hosts of the show. Uh, I am Carlos at plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, Nev? Yes, Nev at PlainTalkingUK.com. That's original, isn't it? We worked really hard to decide on the, on, on the email addresses, didn't we, Nev? What, what's your yeah. one, Matt? <laughs> um, um, Matt at PlainTalkingUK.com. <laughs> and obviously, obviously, Armando has his very own personal one, which is Armando. Uh, it's Armando, that's A-R-M-A-N-D-O, and if you can't remember how to spell it, just email Matt at Plain Talking. And I'm two T's, by the way. <laughs> anyway, that, and that I, went well. I'll tell you what, I'm going to do, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave it for Nev to end the show this week. So, oh. Nev, oh. I'm going to hand things over to you, just so I can press all the buttons and stuff. So, Nev, take it away. Well, thanks very much indeed, everyone, for listening today. Sorry we've had a few technical issues from time to time, and that's uh, one of those things, unfortunately. Uh, but we'd just like to say a very goodbye from everybody uh, who's been on the show today. Bye, everybody. Bye! Bye. 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 Bye.